Welcome everyone. This is Jordan and I'm the worship pastor here at Trevecca Community Church. And we are so glad that you're here with us today as we hear God's word. Each week we stream the service live from the sanctuary just for you. So come along with us now as we grow together and hear what God has to say to us. Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we'd already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had great courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our heart. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We work day and night so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Charles. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, friends, we're continuing on in our series, brand new series, called The Good Life. If you've been with us over the last several months, you know that we've been looking at the good place, we've been looking at good work, and now we're turning our attention to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We kicked it off last week, and we're paying specific attention to the good life. What makes a life good? Now, part of what we talked about last week was the fact that many of us, let's be honest about it, haven't really spent a lot of time thinking too deeply about what makes a good life. The problem with this is that many of us are making actual decisions about our life based on a vision of the good life that's probably gone unexamined. Where did we get this vision? How has this vision come to be? Have we actually taken time to evaluate whether this vision is good so that the decisions that we are making are leading us to goodness? I introduced last week what I think is the primary mode that many of us have come to understand the good life, which is what I'm calling the magazine collage approach to the good life. 
That's basically where we walk through life and we see some stuff that we like, we see some stuff that evokes a little bit of desire in us, and we go, oh, that would be really nice. I want that. Maybe it's that kitchen remodel. Maybe it's that whole new house. Maybe it's that car that you wanted to drive. Maybe it's that educational opportunity. Maybe it's that job. Maybe it's that relationship. Whatever it might be, we look at that and we say, if I could just get my hands on that and incorporate it, now I am living the good life. The problem with this is that every single thing that might go on our collage board, even if we get it, it's not bad. It's just finite. It just has limits. In other words, the job will come to an end, or we might lose that relationship, or the house needs repairs, or something along. We experience the limits of its goodness, and then we are left in a deeply unsatisfied position, thinking there's no hope of the good life. And what we begin to see last week through 1 Thessalonians 1 is that Paul seems to be thinking that the Thessalonians are living a good life precisely because they've stopped trusting in finite stuff. He calls them idols, and they've come to trust in the true and the living God who knows no bounds to goodness, that we can use these temporary finite things of ours to love a God whose goodness knows no bounds. And so this week, we're turning our attention to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, and we're beginning to zero in even more closely on how we might have come to understand a vision of the good life. Maybe it's not just the magazine approach. I think that's a big part of it. But I also think for many of us, we have come to understand a vision of the good life that's been given to us by the people who are closest to us. Yeah. Okay? So these are the people who maybe raised us, our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents, our parents. They might be literal parents. They might be figurative parents, people who have invested in us over time. And that our vision of the good life, even though we might not have examined it carefully, has probably been given to us, has probably arrived as a result of a lot of investment from people in us. So I want to take just a few moments this morning to examine this. And I want to ask all of us to examine it, but I want to start with Shauna. I want to ask Shauna, can we examine together your vision yeah, of the good. good life and how the people who are closest to you, especially in those younger years, might have helped shape your understanding of the good life? Oh, deeply. I think as everyone growing up, I grew up in a pastor's home. And so grew up in a pastor's home where ministry was kind of everything. And life revolved around the church and church activities, serving church people. There were times where we had folks from the church living with us in our house. I mean, our entire life just revolved around ministry. And because life revolved around ministry, it became really clear to me at an early age that that meant we didn't really pursue a life of nice things. You know what I mean? Like we, we never were the, we never had a new car. Uh, we didn't get a lot of new clothes. I was the youngest. I wore my sister's hand-me-down clothes. Our furniture was always a hodgepodge of whatever we got donated from people in the church and from grandparents when they were getting rid of furniture. So our, our furniture never matched. <laughs> we never once had two pieces of furniture that looked like it belonged in the same room. You know what I mean? You've seen these, and, and, and I loved it. In fact, I loved it so much because we could have the youth group over, people could be climbing on top of stuff. You don't worry if a soda got spilled on it because you probably wouldn't notice. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you probably wouldn't notice. And I, I loved growing up in that environment where that was the good life for us. And it felt so good that life and ministry was happening in, in a living room like that. 
So I will never forget driving home for fall break my freshman year of college. I'd moved away uh, to college. I'd only been gone two months, and I come home to visit bringing my roommate from college with me. I'm so excited. I'm going to introduce her to my family. She's going to get to see my home, and I'm so thrilled to introduce her to our good life. And we walk in the front door, and all the hodgepodge furniture is gone, and there is a brand new sofa and matching love seat. And I said, where am I? This is not my home. In fact, I actually weirdly got very upset by it. It was one of those sofas that's like so puffy and fluffy and flowery with all the matching pillows, so many matching pillows. You can't even sit on the couch, it was not functional. And so then my roommate had to hear this rant from me, the entire four hour drive from Bakersfield back to San Diego. I just ranted to her about who are these people? I thought we were living a different kind of life. How dare they buy a matching sofa and love seat? And my roommate finally said to me, Shauna, they're finally empty nesters. They get the furniture they want, get over it. <laughs> That's fair, you know, that, that was really fair. But I think that was the first time that I examined the vision of a good life that growing up in my home had given to me and the fact that there could be other visions of the good life. But what about you? You and I grew up in, in somewhat different environments, somewhat similar, but how did yeah. your early years shape your vision of the good life? Uh, so I think my vision of the good life was given to me by the people who raised me um, in accordance with the gospel of Andy Griffith. Uh-huh, yep. Um, and some of you might be resonating with this a little bit right now. So I've told you several times that I grew up in a kind of agricultural small town environment, really small town environment at first. When I was six, we moved to a really big city of 15,000 people. It was unbelievable to me. Um, but in that very small town when I was first growing up, um, I, I told you that my grandfather was the town barber, and then when mail would arrive to the post office and the postmaster would look at this and it said, to the mayor of Raisin City, they had no mayor, and so she just elected him mayor by sticking it in his, oh, he'll do, he'll be at Ray Gaines. He's going to be the mayor of Raisin City. I mean, that's the kind of small town that we're dealing with here. I would help him mow the, the park across the street. We had, they had one city park, and I, he was the ground crew. And so I would ride on his lap, and we would do these kinds of things. When I grew up in, in the big town of 15,000 people, it was like the kind of experience where you know everybody when you go to the grocery store, the people you go to church with are also the people you go to school with. And there was a kind of quality of life connected to a small town that was a presentation of the good life. Both of my parents, I think, embodied this in profound ways for me. In other words... My mom just loves still being with the people in that town. Like, these are her people. They are her. She is their person, and they're holding on to one another. These deeply formed relationships over time. My dad did the same kind of a thing. I remember, like, he knew a lot of people around town as well, but I always knew it was a good day when I was walking out of my elementary school, and he was waiting across the street from me on his day off. And in the back of the truck was the dog and an ice chest full of goods for us to go down to the river and just like basically reenacted the introduction to the Andy Griffith show. This was the vision of the good life for me. We would skip rocks and go fishing and do all these kinds of things. The problem for me came when that vision of the good life came into conflict 
with what I found to be my calling in life, that ministry was just going to take me to different kinds of places and call me into other kinds of situations. I'll never forget loading up in the family minivan as I'm heading down to San Diego to start my freshman year of my university training. And we made it as far as Los Angeles. And friends, I'd been to LA before, but I'd never been to LA as someone who was just getting ready to strike out on my own. And so I'm looking up at these buildings as we're driving through the night and I'm seeing all of the neon on the buildings and I'm seeing helicopters and airplanes flying over and I'm seeing all this traffic and I'm just glued and I, I suddenly hear laughter from the front seat of the car and my dad has caught a glimpse of me in the rearview mirror and he looks at my mom and he goes, well, mom, I think Opie's finally made it to the big city. <laughs> And I'll just be honest about the fact that that vision of the good life was part of what was in conflict with me. And I still, I think, Shauna, you will testify to this, that I still live this tension inside of me, that I am still deeply faithful to the call of God, and yet if I could do anything to get back to that vision of the good life, I would do it. I would love to go live in a small town if God would call us to some kind of ministry like that, right? You are forever wrestling with the fact that you are Dr. Tim Gaines. You feel like that <laughs> should not be your title, uh, that you should be fishing somewhere. I somewhere. absolutely resonate with that. So Paul and Silas are the ones who come into this town, Thessalonica, and they begin teaching them the way of Jesus and, and, and talking with Jews who were observant Jews in the town and telling them about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come. And as they start to tell this story of Jesus, and they start to tell the story also to, to Gentiles about the fact that the Jewish Messiah has come and is here for you also, and gathering up this Christian community there in Thessalonica, He's casting for them a vision of the good life that's very different from the rest of the ancient Romans, it's very different from their neighbors and coworkers and even their family members. And so as they start to form this church, this Christian community, the Christian community is starting to live in a way that's quite different from the world around them with a different vision of the good life. And these two visions are, are, are so opposed to one another, it seems, that it really creates controversy in Thessalonica. In fact, it creates a lot of controversy. The people accused Paul and Silas, you can read this in Acts chapter 17. If you want to read about the, the planting of the church in Thessalonica, read Acts chapter 17, where they are accused, Paul and Silas are accused of turning the world upside down. It's quite an accusation. So apparently this vision of the good life that Paul and Silas are, pre are presenting, the good life in Jesus Christ, is so different from the way everyone else is living their lives that it feels like they are turning the world upside down. In fact, everything that seemed right is wrong and what seemed wrong is right and what seemed good is not and, and it turned the world upside down essentially. And so a riot breaks out, a mob forms. Uh, in fact, the mob was formed in order to disrupt the, the Christians and to disrupt the momentum that they were gaining in that town. And, and as this riot breaks out, this mob, because these people are turning the world upside down, the Christians come to Paul and Silas and say, we have to get you out of here. Not tomorrow, tonight. We have to sneak you out immediately, it is not safe. And so they sneak Paul and Silas out in the middle of the night, the cover of night. Now, the real insiders in the church life would have known what was going on and would have understood that they needed to get Paul and Silas out immediately. But 
You all know how church life is. I imagine there were some people around the edges that are like, this is pretty shady. (laughs) This is some pretty shady stuff that they're here one day and just gone the next. You wake up one morning and Paul and Silas have just disappeared in the cover of darkness. Well, this is not the way Paul and Silas wanted to leave the church. This is not how they wanted to end their time with the Thessalonians, but they have no other choice. They are ripped away very suddenly, and they hope that they've done enough in their time to model good life in Christ. They hope that they've done enough to teach them and to show them how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God and not just as citizens of Rome. They hope that they have done enough to truly shape this vision of the good life, that it will be powerful enough even now that Paul and Silas are not with them. But they're going to have to trust God to finish the work that Paul and Silas began and hope that what they did was enough. And that's where Paul starts to use parenting language. Did you pick it up in the reading this morning? He's talking about himself in the role of both mother and father. Now, last week, I talked about the pastoral heart that I think I saw in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where if you have to leave an assignment, you still care so deeply for those people, and you want to be sure that they are going to be okay. You're always looking back and saying, I hope they're going to be okay. I hope my time pouring into them was enough to be able to sustain them over time. But now Paul is shifting the metaphor, and he's talking about himself as a mother. He's talking about himself as a father. And I resonate with that too. For those of us who have been a mother or a father, whether that's an actual mother or father, or that's some kind of figurative mentoring role in the life of young people, there's something about that that resonates deeply because you always hope you've done enough so that in some sense, their life will be able to turn the world upside down. It's the kind of question that I ask myself every morning when we're putting our kids on the bus. We are sending them into a world where there are all kinds of visions of the good life that are being presented to them. This is what the good life looks like. This is what the good life looks like. And every time I send them off, I'm thinking about the prayers that I've prayed with them the night before, that Jesus would fill their heart with love so full that there's just no room for anything else, that the vision of the kingdom of God really, truly is the good life, that really Jesus is the only thing that really is actually going to make the world new. The rest is just a bunch of repeats with different names slapped on. And you hope, against all hope, every time you put your kids on the bus, I hope I've done enough. I hope I've modeled this well enough. I hope you've seen something in our lives that is compelling enough to you to say, that really is the good life. I've inherited something from mom and dad, from my mentors, from the people who have gone before me that looks enough like the good life that I can actually stand in that and my life can begin to turn the world upside down. So Paul describes himself first as a spiritual mother. This is the language that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, and 8. He says, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply did we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become so very dear to us. 
Paul is using this language of being like a spiritual mother to these children, the Thessalonians, describing himself as somebody who could have come with authority, making demands. And, and you heard it in the longer passage as well, that they could have come asking for money. They could have come in greed. They could have come really like using their authority as apostles of Christ to make demands of them. And in some ways you can think oh, that that would be effective to come in and say, you need to trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Do this, this, and this, and you'll be a good disciple of Jesus. Like they could have come in and done that, given them a lecture, preached a couple of good sermons and really whipped everybody into shape. But that was not how Paul and Silas came and pastored among these people. In fact, he describes himself not like somebody coming, making demands as an apostle, but giving of their own lives, using the analogy of a nursing mother who's giving of her own body in order to feed her children. So deeply did we care for you, it says. I had a friend once who used to tell me that if she ever got in trouble and needed to go to one of her parents and figure out which one it was going to be, if she went to her dad, she was going to get a lecture. And if she went to her mom, she was going to get a hug and help. Now, I know that that's kind of gendered stereotypes. And in fact, Paul is the man who's describing himself like a spiritual mother, not as the one coming to give a lecture, but as one who's coming to give of his own self. This is the way that Paul and Silas came and behaved among the Thessalonians with this kind of tender, nurturing care that was not just there to preach them a sermon or give them a lecture, but to give of their very lives, tenderly caring like a mother cares for her own children. And then if you saw, Paul starts describing himself as a father. Now, I know this morning that as you hear us talking about mother and father, and this connection to the vision of the good life, some of us want to live into the vision of the good life that our parents might have modeled for us. Others of us have said, I want nothing to do with that kind of a vision of the good life. Others of us are saying, the vision of the good life was presented in negative form for me, mm. that I'm trying to carve out a vision of the good life in reaction against what I saw in my mother and my father. But if you hear Paul's language, the mother imagery here is that kind of giving of self, that nurturing vision of the good life, not just lecturing, but giving of him, his own self. And then the father metaphor is one that's also fascinating to me, largely because the father role, especially in first century Roman culture, was the one who was designed to take the kids when they were of age to be able to start leaving the house, maybe there's still younger siblings that mom is caring for in the house, and now these kids are making their way into the world, and it's the father's job to take these kids and help them associate with society. In Roman culture, it's the father's job to help them socialize into the rhythms and the practices and the cultures to make them as good Romans. So here's what I love about this passage. Paul describes himself not only as the nurturing mother, but also as the father who is now helping them to socialize into this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. That, I think, Paul sees as the good life, that he's helping to nurture them and he's helping to say, I'm helping you to socialize into this kind of a culture. I'm helping you learn the customs and the words and the ways that we're supposed to live like this. Now, as a father, I sometimes wonder if I have been at all effective in these ways. 
Anyone who has ever taken kids to a restaurant knows exactly what I'm talking about here. Uh, kids will do anything. They'll do anything because why? They haven't been socialized yet to say, that's not the noise we make in this public environment. This is not the way that we consume our food, especially when there's other people watching. And you feel this deep sense of wanting to socialize them, to help them pick up on the practices and the customs of a particular culture. That, I think, is Paul's deep desire here. He's reminding the Thessalonians that I wasn't with you as long as I would have liked to have been, but did you see what I did with you? Did you see how I helped you to live a good life? That I wasn't just nurturing you, I was also giving you a pattern and practice to live into. And here's the really subversive part of this. I was helping you not to be a good Roman, but to be a good follower of Jesus. I was helping you to be the kind of community that would go into the world for the sake of turning it upside down. I wanted to make sure that you were the kind of a people who weren't so consumed in the patterns and practices and cultures of Rome, but that you are, were working out of a singular vision of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected that makes a deep difference in this world. Did you see how I was doing that? Did you see how I was giving you a socializing kind of an education? Did you see how I was nurturing you into those kinds of things? Friends, this, I think, is a particular challenge for us in two ways. I think, first of all, we are going to have to examine who our mothers and fathers spiritually have been. Who have been those people in your life who have nurtured you in the way of Jesus Christ, and who are those people who have socialized you in the way of Jesus Christ, who have taught you the patterns and the practices, and have even, some, in some sense, taken you out of these patterns and practices and given you new patterns and practices. I think coming to an awareness of the good life for us is going to be coming to an awareness of who those people actually have been for us. But the second part of the challenge, and this is really, really, I want to lean in this morning, is how we are being spiritual mothers and fathers to the coming generation. This is deep in my heart, in the work that I'm doing these days on a university campus. In some sense, I read a passage like this and I go, whoa, that's a lot of responsibility. I don't want to be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. But in a very real sense as well, I don't want to shirk that responsibility for a minute. I want to lean into this. I want us to be the kind of community where young adults can come to a hill like this and have really good spiritual mothers who give of themselves and have really good spiritual fathers to say, here are habits and patterns and practices, and there's all kinds of visions of the good life that are coming at you left and right, but I want to give you this one because I think it really is the truth of the good life. Who have those voices been for you? Yeah. How can you be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father for someone who is following in your footsteps, coming along behind you? Are you ready to take that responsibility? I know for me, I'm really grateful to have had a mother and father who really were examples of Christ-likeness in my life. 
But beyond my mom and dad, I've had incredible spiritual mothers in my life that have really given of themselves and shown me what it was like to be a spiritual mother, to give of yourself. When I first went off to college, I was there to study pastoral ministry, to become a pastor. And so I assumed that the training that I needed was going to be in biblical studies and theological studies. I I needed to learn how to preach sermons and lead board meetings. That's what I thought I came to college to learn how to do, right? Well, one year I applied to be a resident assistant, which meant I was going to be a student living in a dorm room uh, among a bunch of other college-age girls, and really I was supposed to be the leader of that group of dorms. And so I came in thinking this will be good leadership experience for me to have. Well, the resident director who I worked with, and we have some resident directors in our congregation, the resident director who I worked with, her name was Pat Hours. And Pat became like a spiritual mother to me. When I came in to learn these leadership skills of how to preach a good sermon and lead a good board meeting, I encountered Pat. I encountered Pat who was like a spiritual mom to the entire dorm. When I would come in to have meetings with Pat, almost every single time I'd walk into her apartment and there would already be somebody else on the couch. Someone who just felt safe in Pat's presence, who was able to cry and open up and talk and ask deep questions because Pat just made her feel safe. Pat always had food, always. It was a non-negotiable. You could not leave her apartment without having eaten something. It was this sense that she wanted to care for you, body and soul, make sure that you were well and whole. Her husband, Howard, also, they worked together like this beautiful team that Howard was always there to fix what was broken, uh, to, to make sure that he unclogged the girls' toilets time and time again, even though he constantly complained about it. But they truly, they gave of themselves And what I learned in those years watching Pat was the kind of spiritual leader I wanted to be. Not just somebody that came in and preached a sermon and led a board meeting, but somebody who gave of themselves, of their very lives. Pat would go on to battle with breast cancer. It was a long, drawn-out battle that had starts and stops. But we watched her in that journey where she was actually losing her own life slowly over years. And we watched her graciousness and patience and the way that even as she was losing her life, she was still giving it away to others, giving away her story and experience, her wisdom, her care and nurture to the very last breath that she drew. Pat gave of herself. She was my spiritual mom who taught me how to do the same. I also had incredible actual parents. I'm grateful for this who taught me and nurtured me and also socialized me into the way of the kingdom. But the church has this other way of giving us parents, and I'm grateful for that. One of my spiritual fathers was a Sunday school teacher who taught the fifth and sixth grade boys Sunday school class, and he got no combat pay for any of it. (laughs) Um, He showed up every single Sunday to teach a lesson to a bunch of adolescent boys And I was the fifth grader who came in with about five or six sixth graders, and when they all graduated into the seventh grade, I moved up into sixth grade, but that particular year, there were no fifth grade boys to follow behind me, and so my Sunday school teacher, Bruce, showed up, and he taught me lesson after lesson after lesson after lesson just because I was there. He showed up with curriculum in hand, and he sat behind a desk, and he taught me Sunday school. I got to be honest with you, I don't remember much of the content of those lessons, 
But what I do remember is that he was socializing me into the way of the kingdom. This is what we do. We invest in people because we are getting ready to turn the world upside down. Everything else that is coming at you in terms of the vision of the good life would tell you that this is a foolish waste of time. I'm here to show you this is the way of Jesus Christ. I'm still so deeply grateful for that kind of an example. And then one more that I have to tell you about that has taken place in our congregation this week. And that is Jeff. Jeff is celebrating today his fifth birthday of sobriety. Thanks be to God, but also thanks be to God for the Sunday school class who threw him a party this morning complete with a cake. To the leaders of that class, thank you for the way that you are not only nurturing, but also socializing us into the way of the kingdom. Because here's the reality, that is turning the world upside down, friends. That is the kind of kingdom mentality that I think can be nurtured in communities like this. And so, as Sean and I walked and sat into that Sunday school room this morning and looked around the room, I thought, this is a room full of mothers and fathers. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, you are becoming a spiritual father to this congregation yeah, in are. ways that I can only thank God for. Amen. Thank you, thank you for your investment, and thank you for being the kind of nurturing and reorienting presence that our community needs. Grateful for you, my friend. As we get ready to head into a time of prayer, I just want to invite you to consider who are your spiritual mothers and fathers? Who are the people that raised you into the kingdom of God? Who showed you what it was like to serve Christ? Who not just preached you a sermon or gave you a lecture, but gave of themselves in a way that was Christ-like, in a way that was godly? Who were the people that socialized you, who brought you alongside, uh, who let you come alongside as they went on maybe to visit somebody in the hospital or, or help somebody with their house? Who brought you alongside to show you the way that Christians interact with one another and the world around them? Who were those people for you? Just wanna invite you to consider that this morning. Also wanna invite you to consider, are there people that God has brought into your life that you are being called upon to act as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers? Who might those people be? Who you have opportunity to have influence with and to remember that that influence is not just there so that you can lecture them, mm. tell them what to do and what not to do and make sure they never step out of line. That influence is there so you can show them how to give of yourself how to give of your life, how to lay down your life like Christ laid down his life for the church. Who are the people that God is bringing into your life so that you can have influence, so that you can socialize them? Again, not just to teach them a lecture, tell them what to do, but to say, hey, come alongside me. Come alongside me as I help someone in need. Come alongside me as I study scripture. Come alongside me as I pray for people that are in need. Come alongside me as I care for the needs of my neighbors. Come alongside me. Let me show you how this is done. Who are those people that God might have brought into your life to have influence so that you can act like a spiritual mother or a spiritual father? We can't do this on our own. 
We can't do this on our own. We really do need the body of Christ to show us what the good life in Christ looks like because there are so many competing narratives out there. There are so many competing visions of the good life. Acting like a spiritual mother or father, much like act being parents, can be really thankless. And it never seems like it's done. <laughs> you get to the end of a day and you wonder, is what I've done today enough? <sighs> Have I given enough? Have I done enough? I just grieve. I think about Paul and Silas being torn away from this young, fledgling community so much earlier than they wanted to be, wondering if what they had done was enough. Did they give enough? Did they care enough in the short time that they had? And yet Paul writes that their labor was not in vain. Their labor was not in vain because this investment that they made in the lives of the Thessalonians was now taken up into the life of Christ in the power of the Spirit, and they were bringing a new life into the world. In the church of Thessalonia, it would outlive Paul and Silas. The investment that they made was going to outlive them. And it was worth investing in, and they knew that their labor was not in vain. As you labor, acting as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers, know that it is long, thankless work that doesn't happen in a day. It happens over weeks and months and years, but your labor is not in vain. As we head to this time in prayer, if there's somebody that's specifically on your heart, maybe who's acted as a spiritual mother or father to you, maybe ways that, that you need to come and just let God sort out the gifts that you've been given from spiritual mothers and fathers and the things that perhaps have not been helpful that you need to, to let go of, knowing that all of our spiritual mothers and fathers are human beings and we're complicated people. Or if today you've got somebody who's heavy on your heart that God might be laying on your heart to, for you to act as a spiritual mother or father towards. If you'd like to come and find a place of prayer here at the altar or pray right where you are, that God might show you who are the people in your life that have influenced you and who are the people that you've called to be spiritual parents to. You may be hesitant to accept your calling as a spiritual mother and father. But friends, we are here not just to play church, but to be initiated into a kingdom that is turning the world yeah. upside down. Yeah. You might need to pray for some strength and wisdom to accept that calling mm -hmm. and to ask for the Spirit's guidance in that work that you do. The altars are open as we go to prayer. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can join us in person in the sanctuary at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings live on YouTube, or through our sermon podcast. If you'd like to give, you can do so at trevecca.church give. Any other ministry resources can be found on our website. However you join us, however you choose to engage, know that you are loved. We're grateful for you.